couple of things before I read the text for today. First of all, um, after Russ's homily, um, Martha, that disciple of Jesus, will show up again, and I just wanted to say something about it now so I don't break character when I get to it, um, just so you'll know a little bit about what's going on. On Maundy Thursday, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Russ did a piece uh, from the perspective of Judas, some creative writing from the perspective of Judas, and I did a piece of creative writing from the perspective of Martha, and I imagined that Martha was in at the table for the Last Supper. And I imagine what that experience might have been like for her. Because we don't have all the stories of the Bible. And, well, we have all the stories of the Bible. We don't have all the stories of Jesus uh, recorded. And so I began to just try to imagine what it would have been like to be a follower of Jesus as a woman. And I chose Martha as someone um, to let her eyes help me see more clearly what it would be like to have been in that moment and what I might have learned from that. And so on Easter Sunday, uh, the text that we read this past Easter, this past Sunday uh, had Mary Magdalene and the other Mary at the tomb, which other Mary, I don't know. So I chose for her to be Mary, the sister of Martha. And I imagined that Martha and many others were there as well. Their stories just didn't get told. So today, Martha will show back up in this text that Russ will actually read the full text within the context of his sermon. And when I get up, I'm Martha, okay? I'm Martha, and I'm going to tell you what I saw in my imagination if Martha had been there. So that's an explanation. And just... FYI, pretty sure she's going to show up a few more times during Eastertide. Um, not next Sunday, because I'll be on the youth retreat, but I keep um, working on this Martha idea, and I, I sit down at the, at the computer, and in literally about 20 minutes, it's all out. I was, it's like a stream of consciousness. I'm reading the text and putting myself in that room as a woman, and it it just comes out so quickly. So when it stops coming out quickly, I'll know she's done, okay? But so far, she's not done. Now, before I read uh, a snippet of the end of the text for today from John's Gospel, let me share one thing with you that I think will help you understand this sermon series that we are in during Eastertide. It will take us to Pentecost. The Stories We Tell is the title of this series of worship themes. Frederick Beatner is one of the great Christian commentators of our day. I want to quote to you a paragraph about what he has to say about stories. He says, stories have enormous power for us because they force us to consider the question, are stories true? Not just is this particular story true, but are any stories true? Every storyteller, he says, whether he is Shakespeare telling about Hamlet or John telling about Thomas, looks out at the world and sees things happening. People being born, growing up, working, loving, getting old, and finally dying. Only then, by the very process of taking certain of these events and turning them into a story, giving them form and direction, does he make a sort of claim about events in general, about the nature of life 
itself. And the storyteller's claim, Beekner believes, is that life has meaning. That the things that happen to people happen not just by accident, like leaves being blown off a tree by the wind, but that there is order and purpose deep down behind them and inside them, and that they are leading us not just anywhere, but these stories are leading us somewhere. Life has meaning. The stories we tell help us to understand that meaning, even shape that meaning. I think that's why I've grown to love this Martha in my imagination so much. When Jesus died, his disciples were in shock. This was not what they expected. As they began to process his death, what it meant, what it would continue to mean, we believe the stories they told became essential to the formulation of what is now Christianity. We long ago stopped believing that the Jesus story happened in just the literal way we read it, as if years later God simply dictated all of the Jesus events and their theological meanings to these four separate gospel writers. That kind of view of the inspiration of Scripture sounds now a bit more like magic. And while we do believe in inspiration of Scripture, we believe inspiration takes place in a more organic way. Over the course of time, as these followers of Jesus looked back and tried to remember, tried to understand, and began to hear their Jewish Scriptures in light of what they had seen in Jesus, the stories they told became the belief that we hold. So as we walk again these days after Easter, we want to consider the stories that they told after that first Easter over 2,000 years ago. Which stories did they remember? Why did they tell those particular stories? Why did they remember those particular words that Jesus spoke, and what does it mean? Why did they tell these stories then? And why is the church still telling the stories now? Here's how the Gospel of John ends with the answer that we want to offer for today. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing, you may have life in his name. We hope that listening to these stories, again, might help us all to believe and to have life in his name. You have heard the ancient story. Throughout this Easter series, you will hear us referring to the church and the first disciples and the early followers interchangeably as references to those original followers who would eventually become Christianity. The first story they told was the story of resurrection. We told that story last week on the glory of Easter morning, the good news that even death cannot destroy hope. Now, for those who are interested in digging a little deeper, I want to dialogue some with this book, N.T. Wright and Marcus Borg, 
the meaning of Jesus, two visions. I want to take the next two Sunday nights and look at Borg's and Wright's perspective on resurrection. We'll meet at 5.30. Amy will be meeting with our young people. Um, 5.30 the next two Sunday evenings. You can order the book online. I looked this morning. You can order it today, and it'll be at your house tomorrow. Um, or you can talk to me, and I'll make sure you have a copy. If you want to look a little more at resurrection, what did resurrection mean for Jesus? What does it mean theologically? What are its implications for us in this life and the next? The details for that two-week study are on the back of your bulletin, and you can contact me for any more information. The first story the church told was the story of resurrection. And that story is the backdrop of today's story. But I want to suggest that this episode with Thomas is not about the resurrection per se. By the time of the writing of John's gospel, which might have been 70 years after the death of Jesus, the Jesus movement had then become solidified. His followers were by then being called Christian. And Christian churches were appearing across the Mediterranean world. As John writes... The resurrection of Jesus is already an accepted part of this movement. So he's not defending the resurrection per se as much as he is using it to move on to the next story, which I want to suggest to you is the story of belief itself. What is belief? What does it mean to believe? What do you believe? Marcus Borg discusses the meaning of belief in his book, Speaking Christian. And he says that the common understanding today is actually a misappropriation of that word. Today, we hear the word believe referring almost exclusively to an intellectual understanding, something that happens in our minds. We believe something. To be Christian in this way of thinking is to hold a correct set of opinions to believe certain things about Jesus. For fundamentalist Christians, those right thoughts about right things would include believing that the virgin birth, the divinity of Jesus, the bodily resurrection, the second coming, all must be understood and accepted literally to believe in those things. Borg says this largely misses the point of the biblical understanding. The Greek word and the older English usage indicate that we have sort of misunderstood. Prior to the 16th century, he says, believe always had a person as its direct object. It did not mean believing that a statement was true, but more like what we mean when we say, I believe in you. To believe in you. The word came from the old English uh, word, be loaf, which means to hold dear. The similarity to the modern English word, be love, is obvious. To believe is to be loved, to trust, to commit, to give our hearts to something. It's not just what happens between our ears, what we think about something. Today's text, this upper room gathering, is sometimes used as a proof for the right belief about the resurrection. Thomas saw Jesus. Thomas touched Jesus because Thomas believed in the resurrection. Thomas believed in Jesus. Well, I want to invite you to hear that story differently today. 
As I read the story, I want to invite you to put down your bulletins. Now, normally, I like for you to read along and see what we're doing. But today, I don't want you to read. I want you to just listen. I want you to try to pretend you've never heard this story of doubting Thomas before. Forget that it's in the Bible. All those Bible story associations that often make it hard for modern people to hear a good story. Listen as you would listen as you would hear when you read a good novel. Listen to this story as you might watch a movie. Just listen. It's an amazing story. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them. And he said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw that it was the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them, and he said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. And if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told Thomas, We have seen the Lord. But Thomas said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails, and unless I put my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now the point of the story is belief. It's the point of John's gospel, telling these stories that you might believe and have life in the name of Jesus. So Jesus says to Thomas, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now, if being able to believe without seeing, without some physical proof, is the point John is trying to make, it seems counterintuitive that the writer would prove this by having Thomas touch the risen Christ. And I don't believe Thomas actually did. John says Jesus did give Thomas the opportunity. Put your finger here, he said. Reach out your hand. But if Thomas actually touched Jesus, we're not told that in the story. Wouldn't that be an interesting detail to leave out for an otherwise detailed encounter with the risen Jesus? Jesus offers the opportunity, and instead, when Jesus encourages Thomas, do not doubt but believe, 
I think John gives us a picture of the very faith he is affirming. Thomas just immediately says, my Lord and my God. Belief means Thomas did not need physical proof because his belief was in the person of Jesus, not something about him. The gospel writer knows faith is not tangible proof, but something even more powerful than that. It is, as Scripture affirms, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Believing in Jesus does not mean intellectually affirming a physical resurrection, though that can be a part of your understanding. It means trusting in the story of Jesus, giving your love and your life to it. Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, what it all means, hope for liberation and healing and new life. Wherever, whenever, however that happens. Physical healing, release from addiction, Restored relationships, mental liberation, a new lease on life. The story of Jesus invites us into a hope that is very real and challenges us to live out of that very powerful belief. Jesus invites us to believe. May it be so. I was there, again, in that very room, and I'm not going to lie to you, we were all afraid. We had ridden the roller coaster of emotions in just that one day, a day that seemed like it lasted about a week. The Marys had found the tomb empty that morning. They ran to tell the others, leaving the rest of us to wait and wonder. At first, we were confused, then elated. It was all kind of coming together like he had tried to tell us back when we could not understand. But let's be honest, we don't really understand still. So we quickly moved through the stages of grief and disbelief because we didn't have the time or luxury to linger for very long in any one stage. So we went from confused to elated. We celebrated with pound cake at my picnic blanket of welcome, if you'll remember from last week. And then we pretty quickly moved right on into the stage called fear. I'm not ashamed to tell you this. We were all afraid for our lives. We didn't want to be the next person hanging on a cross of association. He had talked to us about taking up our own crosses, but at this point, we were just hoping that he was speaking in metaphors. So we did what any sane group of friends would do. We hid ourselves away, locked in a room, to plan our strategy for survival. And we needed some time to make sense of things. But how do you make sense of this? I want you to know that I know how lucky I am that the guys included me. Me, little old Martha. I will forever be grateful, first to Jesus, 
and then to his closest pals that they seemed to value my opinion. They had taken their cue from Jesus at that last supper we had shared that all are welcome, even me, little old Martha. And I understood that that alone could get them in trouble down the road. So I enjoyed it while it lasted. So all I know to tell you is this. As sure as I'm standing here today telling you about this, this is what happened. We experienced the presence of Jesus among us in that locked room that night. It was as real as if he were showing us the scars of his torture to prove it. A peace came over us. I can't even explain what it felt like except to call it a peace that passes understanding. In all of our afraidness, we had also been plotting how, when, and if we could exact some revenge on the perpetrators of his murder. And that was when one of us, I can't remember who, maybe it was Andrew, started reminding us about forgiveness. If Jesus had talked about anything, it was all about grace, mercy, and forgiveness. If I had a dollar for every time he talked about that, well, I'd have a lot of dollars, and I sure could use them right now. We had almost started the eye-rolling any time he would bring it up. It was so much. So then we started recalling, well, you remember that time Jesus said we had to forgive not just seven times seven, but 70 times seven, like I can do that kind of math? And you remember that time that Jesus said we had to go the extra mile and turn the other cheek? And that was when it happened. With every story that we told, that was when the peace started washing over us because then we knew we had to turn our fear into forgiveness. I hate that Thomas had not been there that night. He went around for a whole other week carrying hate and anger and fear in his heart it made him cold and distant that's what hate and anger and fear will do to your heart you know it'll make you cold and distant but he finally came around thank goodness because nobody had the energy to deal with thomas all we had the energy to do was remember what Jesus expected of us. Now we had to welcome everyone, we had to love everyone, and we had to forgive everyone. It was a heavy load, but Jesus had entrusted us with it to live as if he were still among us. And he was. I mean, he is just as surely as I'm standing here telling you about it. But here's the thing. The farther I get away from that day, it's less and less about missing my friend and more and more about accepting and embracing his way. So much so that it's like his way is becoming my way in a way that is so entangled that now I'm not just a follower, I'm a believer. 